We're looking today at, at Matthew 5, and then we'll actually jump to Revelation for a little bit of the sermon. But uh, if you have your Bible, and I would encourage you to grab a physical Bible. Um, you can use your app or your phone or, or whatever also, but I like having a physical Bible. and touching it and remembering that these things are true. I'm looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, where Jesus... This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the section of your Bible that's all read if you have a red-letter Bible. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So I don't know if you liked the title. I heard back from a few people because they knew that it was a reference to the Night at the Roxbury. What is blessing? Baby, don't, I can't do it. <laughs> you know what I mean, and you know that I shouldn't keep singing it. And here's the reason I want to talk about this, because I hear us use this word. I did it myself. I called a theologian this week to talk about the subject matter of this sermon. And I did the same thing that I'm going to discourage you from doing in this sermon, which is using the word blessing differently than how Jesus defines it. I wonder this. Do you believe God is good? Most of the time, our doubts circle around one of two questions that overlap theologically, but in our minds and felt experiences with God in the world, they come from two places. Do we believe God is good? Do we believe he's in control? And as we appropriate the word blessing or utilize it the way that scripture does, those questions swirl in us. And some of us realize we have those questions and that's why we study the Bible and that's why we enjoy singing hymns because we're singing them to our own hearts. That's why we enjoy discussing with friends the things of God and how our experience does and doesn't match up with that, how our understanding um, has overlapped with the truths of God. You believe he's good still the way that you did perhaps in January. I believe it is inevitable for humans to wrestle with these questions. I think it's actually a fundamental part of being a human being. It's the reason that prayer and song and conversation are so important. There is a beautiful way. You know that, right? You know that that's what the Beatitudes are referencing. A beautiful way of being in the world, both the Beatitudes in Matthew and in Revelation. You know that, I hope that trusting Jesus with your heart and with your decisions leads you into a life, a way that has been purchased for you, that has been empowered by another, filling us in ways we could never fill ourselves, and then continues to lead us into an ever-flourishing life where we know how to interact with God and with others. There is a beautiful way. 
Jesus guides us into that way, and it is a way most human. While we're on this earth, we long to be the fullest expression of ourselves, which are made in the image of God. Jesus both purchased that way for us and then guides us into it. We're made for relationships. And so Jesus guides us into right worship and intimacy with him through his work and into relationship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. We're made for relationships with others. So Jesus and the entirety of Scripture guide us into wise relationship with others. This is how we flourish with our boss and with our spouse if we're married or if we're alone. Jesus and the Apostle Paul modeled for us a flourishing with God life without a traditional family. We're made to care for the world also. The, the with God life draws us into both worship for God, that's the most fundamental part of our humanity, community with one another, and then faithful presence. This is the commandment before the curse enters the world is that humans care for the earth. Now we can't care for a whole lot of it, but we can care for some of it. That involves dialoguing with our neighbors. And that commandment is the same today, though our tactics are different than they would have been in February. But there is a beauty, and it's a whole beauty. In Christ, learning the with God life, following the commandments of God, which are always preceded by the promises which empower us, we become our most beautiful, full selves. Beatitudes that describe the beautiful way of being in the world as a follower of Jesus are whole in what they promise and empower and then guide us into. This means that we learn how to both praise and lament. I, had been, I have been working in my, there are a number of ways that I pray and I don't do all of them every day. One of them is to write down things that I'm grateful for. And I write, thank you, Lord, and thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And this week, I went to the back of that journal. It's in an old accounting journal. And I decided that in as much as I'm grateful, I also need to be honest with God about the sad things in my life. Because the with God life is a holistic thing. Healing the parts of us that are wounded, drawing near and comforting the parts of us that are sad, and also helping us to praise him for the good things in our life, for the actual blessings described in the Beatitudes. There it goes. I think that we love specific religious terms, and this probably changes culturally, and it probably changes around the country, and... What concerns me is when we take terms, words, that Jesus used specifically, and we either change them or broaden them, we are setting ourselves up for future pain. Okay, that's my concern. Is that we take, especially this word that Jesus used very specifically, makorioi in the Greek, and he used it to describe the with God life as a beautiful way of being in the world. When we take it, blessed, in English, and start to either change the definition or narrow it. We're setting ourselves up for future pain. That's what concerns me. That's the heart of this sermon series. We're on number three. The first one was God doesn't give us more than we can handle. If we believe that almost truth, and then we can't get out of bed 
one morning. What then happens? We judge ourselves in ways that God would never lead us to judge ourselves. And perhaps worse, because we love statements like that because we think they can help our neighbor, what if we believe God doesn't give us more than we can handle, then our neighbor can't get out of bed that morning and somehow has the courage to still text us that and ask us to pray for them. What do we do if we believe that lie? We judge them. That doesn't make us a better friend to them. It makes us a worse one. If we're not going to semantic, if we're not going to unpack the semantics of that, if we're going to accept the fact that God's words come to us in a way that we can receive in part because we have limits and he does not, then that statement is not true. God does give us more than we can handle, that we might remember that he can handle it and turn to him in our need. Last week, we looked at everyone suffers, which is true. But oftentimes when we say, does everyone suffer? What we mean is, does everyone suffer the same? And if we believe that almost truth, and we can't stop weeping, what happens? We judge ourselves as less than human or a subpar human. If we believe that everyone suffers the same and our friend cannot function like they used to be able to function, what happens? We're a worse friend. Everyone does suffer, but everyone does not suffer the same. God gives us a number of tools to interact with him about that, to lament. And yet it's a lie. Maybe we made a resolution. I think when we make internal resolutions, they feel like agreements because when we look back on them, it feels like we made them with another party. An agreement that God isn't going to give me more than I can handle, and we mean it like I'm going to be strong enough for whatever life throws at me, and then we're not you know everybody suffers meaning i should compare my circumstances to others instead of doing the lament and the praise to god and asking him questions the quintessential question that even jesus asked why god on the cross instead of doing that i'm going to believe this truism i'm going to make a resolution in my head or an agreement because it feels like it's with another person to most humans that i've talked to and certainly to myself everyone suffers therefore it's okay and i'm just going to try and squash it I think those things harm us. And the best we can do is not make an agreement to never make an agreement or make a resolution to never make a resolution, but to attempt to notice them. To learn to pray, Lord, where have I made agreements that are not, or resolutions that are not true to Scripture? When we're talking with other people and we realize that we have something that we're holding on to as a way of doing life that isn't scriptural, often, for me, this often comes up in conversation. For many of you, you can do that work internally. I need to talk about it. Oh, that's not true. That probably is harming me. So I'm worried about how you define, let me just say it this way. I'm worried about how you define blessing. How do you define it? Go ahead and take a second to think. I'll give you some time. Last week, my 14-year-old told me that my wife gets to talk to me more during the sermon than usual. I don't know if that's true in your living room, but if you have a teenager, I would love to hear from that teenager about how you're talking to me during the sermon. That would be fun for me. How do you define blessing? I'm worried it's this one. That I'm going to be able to save everything, that I'm going to be able to have all the things that I want to have, that I'm going to have good health and all the financial things that I want. 
This is the most distorted evil version of the gospel of Jesus through the lens of how we define this. Years ago, I was with a friend in Boston and he had brought a colleague. They were doing a business meeting and I went and had dinner. I got to have dinner with him and his colleague and his colleague's spouse and seemingly out of nowhere for me, I guess he knew I was a pastor. He asked me what I thought about a particular preacher. And he, after talking for a few minutes, the other one said, and this is not a follower of Jesus. He's not tremendously familiar with the Bible, but through friendships and reading, he understood this preacher. And he said, I feel like if I went through one hard thing, that whole gospel would fail me. And I, I just didn't know what to say. I, that's really well said. Yes. When we believe that blessing equals prosperity, not only are we believing something that's almost the opposite of what Jesus said, it will harm us later because what if we're prosperous now? Believe that's blessing, then we're not prosperous later. This is the one, and and I don't see that in, in people that I interact with at my former church and at this church. This is the one that I see. We describe our provision as blessing. And that, I'm not saying provision isn't good. If your income has not been affected, you have electricity, or your income has been affected, but you have enough in savings. I'm glad. I'm grateful. I'm thankful. What the Apostle Paul does in the sections of his letters where we might write, blessed, is he says, I'm thankful for. The provision that you experience in your life right now is that. It is provision. Because here's what concerns me. If that provision were to go away and you were calling it blessing, I'm nervous that your felt experience of your faith will be shaken. Your, your faith cannot actually be shaken because it's Jesus who's holding on to you. But your experience, your relative disorientation in that moment, if you define blessing as provision, skyrockets. This is the one that I struggle with calling blessing all the good things in my life. I've told this story before when I was getting ordained. We ended up talking a little bit about the the many good mentors and friends that I had in my life. And I said I was very lucky in friendship. And the man who was interviewing me challenged me on it. And he smiled and he was a friend of mine. But I changed the word to blessed. And that bothers me. Because what if I lost some of those friendships through tragedy or through relational breakdown? Would I then believe that God is no longer blessing me? I think that would be wrong, which doesn't mean I wouldn't mourn the loss of the friendships. It doesn't mean I wouldn't remember fondly the time that I was so thankful for my good friends. I'm nervous that we define blessing as the good things in our life. This is a very sneaky way that the world or our own false self or the evil one can distract us from the words of Jesus. There is a beautiful way in the with God life, and it is through our hope in him. Some versions of the Bible actually translate this word as happy, and I kind of like that, and I kind of don't. I feel like it's a, a sort of more anemic word for us than in the Greek, and at the same time, I like it because maybe if we adopted it, we'd stop saying blessing in these ways that Jesus didn't define them. But if you look at the Beatitudes, what's the first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that is the fundamental first move of us in response to God's pursuing love. We know that we can't save ourselves. That's what poor in spirit means. We have a knowledge that our spirit in and of itself doesn't have the strength 
or the merit through a sinless life to recover relationship with God and then with neighbor. And yet we know we need that through the Holy Spirit's pursuit of us. And the reason that I wanted to preach on this is not because I think you need to be as over, that you need to overthink words as much as I do, but the reason I believe it is some parts of our felt hope, some parts of our daily experience and our knowledge of God are based on trite, almost truths like provision is blessing or that every good thing in my life is blessing in the way that Jesus meant it. When I spoke to my theologian friend, he said, it's not sin when we call thing, good things blessing. And I agree with him because he's Dr. Griggs and I'm Matt. But if we're leaning on that, we're actually not leaning on the way Jesus actually described blessing. And we're missing a great amount of comfort, assurance, and hope. And we're setting ourselves up for um, harm later. When Job and the Apostle Paul flourished, they praised God and thanked him. And when they didn't, they still thanked him. And that, that can sound harsh, like it's a commandment to do that. But both of them understood that God was still good and still God, regardless of what they had in their lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We know our need. We've gone to God with it, and he has given us the kingdom, which Romans 14, 17 says is righteousness, joy, and peace. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is a wise and good thing for us to learn how to mourn to God, both because of our natural state and then because the world is still under the curse. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Listen, this is one of the most misunderstood words in the whole Bible. Meek doesn't mean weak. It almost means the opposite. It means a sense of your actual strength and calling and gifts and others'. So you know who you are in the world. And you're okay with that and even confident in it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is one of the loveliest things about the saints, which is what the New Testament calls the the members of the house churches. We long to get better at loving one another. We long to be better at loving well, and God satisfies us in that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is probably the beautiful attitude we can uh, utilize most easily to see how the Lord has grown us. Are you being grown in mercy? Even as you're skeptical of those that need mercy, are you being grown in mercy? Because I believe that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's a gift from him that we receive. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God in relationship. We long for others to flourish. And we have some sense of what that means through the promises and commands of God. And so we step in, not all the time, but when and where we can, we step into relationships and help them heal. And then, and this is, I noticed as I was reading this, just this morning, Jesus then bridges something that's very important for the New Testament. He begins to talk about this with an eschatological tone, an end times tone. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says it a little more strongly. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. There is a beautiful way to be in the world. There is a beautiful way. It's found in the with God life through putting our hope in Jesus who leads us both in giving us a sense of our need and then we move towards him in faith, by faith, into these beautiful ways of being in the world. If we define blessing differently and that good thing that we were defining blessing as goes away, then our felt assurance of the Holy Spirit is needlessly shaken. I realize it's a long sentence, probably an imperfect sentence. I'm going to say it again. If blessing is defined as anything good in our lives and that good goes away, then our felt assurance of the love of God is needlessly shaken. I wonder if your prayers are different in Corona. I I think they should be. Not because you aren't blessed now and you were then, but because our lived experience of the world is different. Our Our engagement in worship and community and faithful presence is different. Most of your engagement with your work is different. Even if everyone's still there, everyone's anxiety is ramped up. For me, what has happened is when I go to pray, I mentioned this last week, but I continue to do it. When I go to pray, and I long to pray for my family and staff and elders and many of you, I need to lament first. I cannot pray the same way. And that, that's not because I'm not blessed now. If I go to Jesus' definition of blessing, I am blessed. And yet, how do I do that blessing? By putting my hope and trust in him in the ways that he has shown us to. Through lament and through intercession for others. Through praise and through expressing frustration to him. Our hope is in nothing else than him. I have interesting news for you. Don't tell anybody I said this. But we are in the end times. Did you know that? Do you know where the other place in the Bible where we have beautiful attitudes? Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. For the time is near. Jumping up to chapter 14, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Chapter 16, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Talking about garments is a metaphor. Blessed is the one who isn't waiting on anything to act like a follower of Christ. Revelation 19, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. This mirrors the first beatitude. Blessed are those who the Lord has given them a sense of their poverty without him. They have put their trust in Jesus and received back an invite to the marriage supper of the lamb. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And you have a lot of questions over that. Well, I preached on it in the fall. You can go back and and re-listen to those. And behold, I am coming soon from chapter 22. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
And then again in chapter 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. When Jesus concluded the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, he began to give us a sense of the eschatological importance of them. When Jesus gave John his vision in the Revelation, he spoke to him about having confidence in acting like a follower of Jesus until either we go to be with Jesus, that's heaven and the first death, or Jesus comes down and sets things to rights. Now, I said that we're in the end times, but we're not any more in the end times than faithful churches were in 1918. And we're not any more in the end times than Martin Luther in the 16th century when he talked about how the mission and the promises of God are the same, but our tactics are different. And then he talked about fumigation. He was a little ahead of his time in that sense. And so what happens now? How do we flourish? Well, we learn to worship, which is challenging when we're in the room, and it's challenging when we don't get to be in the room. We learn to wisely trust one another in community that our sharing of stories in light of the gospel will grow us up. We learn to still care for our neighbors and, and be as faithfully present as we can. And I am so encouraged and proud of the stories I hear about people creatively reaching out to the, those who can't leave their homes nearby and those that can leave their homes, but they're becoming better friends with. I'm becoming better friends with our mailman, Vinny, through this. I'm thankful to God. And that doesn't make me think this is all, that's why this is all happening. But I am thankful for it. And as you move into your world, as a wise lover of God and neighbor, I hope that you define blessing correctly. We're as much in line with Jesus as we can get. Because our world is being shaken, and yet the promises of God hold true. If you have a physical Bible, and I'm saying this because it helps me. If it doesn't help you or you think it's, that's fine. If you have a physical Bible, put your hand on it. And remember that though our world is remarkably different than it was, his promises, his guidance, still good and true. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you that you are a good, good father. Jesus, we thank you for telling us to pray to God as a good, good father because of your work. We praise you also for defining true blessing as knowing our need and receiving your pursuing love. Holy Spirit, meet us in our emotions the good ones and the disproportionate ones. Meet us as we attempt to worship you, Lord, and our voices falter. Holy Spirit, comfort and assure us of your love. Remind us that that love is unshakable, unassailable, now and forever love. Amen.